You are listening to the Balancing Act podcast with Danny Euro. I'm a licensed mental health counselor based out of Miami, Florida. I use the ideas and principles of acceptance and commitment therapy to help individuals who find themselves struggling in various areas of their lives. Episode 2. To look at your thoughts or from your thoughts? That is the question. Hi there, this is the Balancing Act podcast. My name is Danny Euro. Thank you so much for tuning in. Just a special thank you to those who listened to the first episode and have found us again to listen to the second episode. I greatly appreciate that. Got some great feedback from the listeners, and I just, uh, I'm just i just humbled by the fact that you would spend time uh, listening in and just kind of following along and spreading the word. I want to send out a special welcome to those that are finding us for the first time. Uh, that is uh, it's amazing. That's cool. It's exciting uh, how this slowly spreads from person to person. And uh, I'm just excited about where this can possibly go. And I'm hoping that it impacts individuals in a positive way, leaves them better than how it found them, uh, as the vision continues to unfold and I continue to progress along with that vision. So very excited, very thankful, and uh, looking forward to this episode, which is basically the, I guess, the first on the first episode dedicated to um, a way to combat inflexibility. Today's episode is about diffusion and our habit of being actually cognitively fused to thinking where it actually influences our behaviors. Calling back to the first episode, which is devoted to the idea of uh, psychological flexibility and how um, we have a, a way of resisting the physics of life, which can incur injury. There's ways that we can become flexible, and there's ways that we are inflexible. And so today's episode, being about cognitive fusion, will explore the narrator that we have in our head. I kind of joked about it last episode about this idea of a, of a narrator in these uh, Discovery Channel shows where, you know, they're, you know, this is the crocodile in its natural habitat kind of thing. And uh, that's my best attempt at being a narrator voice. And basically our life unfolds in front of us, right? There's just a, just one neutral event after another that's happening. And then as these events happen in our lives, this narrator voice in our head is basically dictating to us what's happening. Sometimes it's uh, non-judgmental, but a lot of times it, it, is, it is judgmental. Sometimes it's... Uh, discussing the expectations that sometimes it's mind reading uh, other people's uh, motivations sometimes it's trying to predict what's going to come next sometimes it's trying to uh, put the pieces together of what was just missed like what what am I not seeing and let me fill in the blanks and uh, this narrator we have it has a way of uh, influencing us one way or the other and if we're too uh, susceptible to the influence of what we're thinking, what this narrator is narrating to us, that's what we would call fusion, being fused to those thoughts. And that ends up um, really causing a sense of inflexibility because we are looking at the world from our thoughts, right? And then the goal would be, to the goal being psychological flexibility is to be diffused from our thoughts, to not look at the world from our thoughts, but in fact, looking at our thoughts and realizing that our thoughts are, you know, what the narrator is saying in our head is not the rule of the land. It's not, it's not the end all be all. It's not the grand mystic voice of the land that's dictating everything, but just, just the manifestation of just our biases, you know, 
when we start to understand that, it becomes a cheat code. So I'm going to talk a little bit about it. I'm going to try not to get too wonky in the science stuff with talking about applied behavior analysis. For those that know me, they know I kind of get into that ABA talk, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of hard. No offense to the behaviorists out there because I'm one of them, but sometimes it, it gets a little bit too jargon-heavy, so I want to be sensitive to that. I don't want to weigh you down with a, with a lot of science. So at the risk of oversimplifying some things, but I think uh, at the gain of keeping you tuned in and keeping you focused on the gist of it, I think it's it's uh, it's worth the trade-off. So in discussing the behaviorism component of this, there's basically um, an A, a B, and a C to to keep in mind: antecedent behavior and consequence. Right. So antecedent is basically anything that's that occurs right before we elicit a behavior. There's some kind of stimuli that happens and then I elicit a behavior and that the behavior is the letter B. And then the C is the consequence, which is literally anything that's going to happen after the behavior. So antecedent behavior then consequence. If the consequence is something that I enjoy it's somehow gratifying it's some some kind of uh reinforcer right well i just said it reinforcer then i'm more likely to do that behavior in the present of the antecedent uh, in the future right the probability goes up so if there's a particular stimuli present and then i do something and then the result the consequence is something i enjoy then the next time the antecedent is present, I'm more likely to do the behavior because I was rewarded to elicit that behavior in that antecedent with the consequence. And conversely, if there antecedent is present and I elicit a behavior and then the consequence that follows the behavior is something that I do not enjoy, it's aversive for some reason, I am less likely to, to elicit that behavior in the present of that antecedent because the consequence was aversive, it was a punisher. So these are basic components of operant conditioning. This contingency, right, this behavior contingency of an antecedent, increasing the probability of eliciting a behavior when followed by a consequence that is rewarding, that's reinforcing, uh, it could be really powerful. It could really dictate the way we do things in particular settings. Not to get too bogged down by some of these things, but the, just the way we um, the way we behave at work or in the classroom or with um, in particular settings um, with certain friends versus other friends, the way we interact with police officers or, or authority figures, a lot of these interactions, the way we behave, have a lot to do with our um, contingencies, our past experiences. Where if we behave a certain way in these, you know, antecedent. Uh, laden situations, we're pretty sure that it's going to result in some kind of reinforcer or, you know, we can envision behaving a different way, which may result in some form of punisher that we do not want to experience. So um, a lot of our social behavior, a lot of the way we interact has a lot to do with our, you know, our learned behavior in particular settings with antecedents and in our, our past experience, how how certain behaviors are going to elicit or bring on um, consequences that we enjoy versus what we don't enjoy, right? So that's outward behavior. That's the that's that's just typical behavior that is quantifiable. That's you can see it, you can measure it, and you know this person does this seven out of ten times in a particular setting. So so now to shift and then 
into this other idea is verbal behavior, right? So imagine sort of the same rules now. I'm at a risk of oversimplifying it because there's a lot of different schools of of thought that really explain this very detailed, very, very procedurally precise that is amazing, but it really, to explain it, like, you know, relational frame theory and things like that, it, it'll just... I think it's a little bit too involved for what we're trying to do here, and I don't want to—I don't want to miss the mark too much. There may be an episode down the road where we get more into the nuts and bolts of it, because it is fascinating. I do enjoy it, and I think that there's—it's um, pretty amazing when you start to wrap your mind around the way our verbal behavior works. But just like our outward behavior, we have. Uh, basically patterns of verbal behavior that work a certain way because of antecedent and reinforcement schedules, right? And it's what the narrator has learned is the most reinforcing way to describe what is being perceived through the senses. So for this portion of the discussion is uh, the main takeaway I hope you you pull from this is that the language that we use in our head, the verbal behavior that is um, that I've been kind of using the parallel with the the narrator of the of the Discovery Channel um, Serengeti um, example, that verbal behavior is um, is just behavior. It's just language. It's, uh, we have a bad habit of attributing it to some more powerful place that is transcending behavior. When it's just, it's a behavior. It's the, you're thinking. The reason why you think the way you think is because of a history of reinforcement and punishment, and it's molded uh, patterns of thinking. And, but it's just a behavior. It, no different than you deciding to put order extra cheese on your pizza or scratching uh, an itch on your arm. There, these are all reinforcement-maintained behaviors, and the language that's happening in your head in this verbal behavior is is just that. It's a behavior. It's a behavior that's being maintained uh, on a contingency of either uh, either reinforcement or some way of instantly gratifying away from something that's punishing, something that's aversive. And this is really an important distinction to make because once you start looking at your thinking as a behavior – now you start having more of an empowerment and understanding that wait a second i can i can I can monitor this, I can manage this just like I manage my other behaviors, just like I diet, just like I start finding a better place to put my car keys so I don't lose them, just like I decide to do this workout differently, I can start approaching my thought differently that it is a it is um it's it is a behavior that could be managed and observed and uh modified in some way. And that's powerful. It's a powerful tool. And that is the beginning of this idea of cultivating psychological flexibility when you realize that the language that's coming up out of you in this uh, narrator voice is just the behavior, just words glued together. And, um, and we have a bad habit of taking them as the rule of the land and looking at the world from our thoughts instead of just looking at our thoughts as a, just another behavior. There's a quote that I like. I might be butchering um, his, the name, but it's by a gentleman named Jiddu Krishnamurti. And um, the quote is, there is nothing sacred about thought. And um, that thought's pretty powerful, if you ask me. But um, it is like the, the, the term I use for, for the, those of you that play video games is that's the cheat code. 
it really is like cheat code in video games is you know like in Contra that really up up down down that fly, I, don't, I don't even know like I, I know there's a cheat code in Contra that gives you like unlimited lives and, and then and you can like beat the game and whatnot I just dated myself because I think more than half you're like what the hell is Contra but this quote there's nothing sacred about thought is the cheat code if you realize that there's nothing sacred about what you're thinking that it's just a thought it's just words it's just language that got glued together and it then it loses its power over you. I'm going to use an example. I don't mean to offend anyone, the vegetarians out there, or those who have given up on red meat, right? I love myself some Trudasco. I'm a big fan of Trudasco. It's probably it's probably one of my favorite go-to meals if I'm if I really want to like treat myself, right? What I want to encourage uh, you all to do is to just to envision your your favorite meal. Right. Um, hopefully just to, you know, increase some of the motivation in this. I'm ho- hoping you're hungry. That would make this even more powerful of an example. But I want to encourage you to, to, to just begin to imagine the meal, the, the meal of meals. You know, God forbid you're the death row last meal, your last supper, your last uh, hurrah, where calories doesn't matter. Uh, even the lactose doesn't matter. Um, just envision it. Envision it in front of you made perfectly as if Emeril himself went bam and made it for you. The most perfectly executed, perfectly recipied meal. And it's there in front of you on a plate. And if you're envisioning it, and I'm going to do like a quick four or five second count. I want you to, I don't want my voice to interfere with your thought process of envisioning your meal. Um, and it gives me a chance to think about my meal, which is making me a little bit hungry. But starting now, I'll give you three or four seconds just to envision this meal. And um, it's got the, you know, for me, I'm going to just put my meal out there because for the sake of the example. But I have this churrasco there on my plate and I've got some, uh, um, some plantains, uh, maybe even some some rice and beans, right? So I'm kind of giving yeah, the, the, the Latino um, flavor on this, right? And it's there. It's the, the, it's the, You can smell it and, and try to imagine the smell. Try to inve- imagine all the different elements of it, the texture, the glean on it, the plate that it's on. And hopefully, what, whatever is the meal that you're envisioning, it's probably elicited some kind of response as, as you've thought about this perfect meal. And maybe the response is one of maybe you got, your mouth has gotten a little bit watery and you've gotten maybe a little hungrier, right? Maybe a little bit nostalgic. Maybe it, maybe it triggered some, some thoughts and memories of the last time you ate a meal like this. That was this particular combination of food. And then and I'm going to warn you. <laughs> warning, warning, right? Now there's a roach on the table that just crawled across the table and what just happened uh and it it was literally like it crawled like maybe two inches away from the plate uh what happened to this uh to to your appetite what happened to all the responses uh that you were going through as you were envisioning this uh this meal it probably got extinguished pretty quickly and that is what the power of thought has on us right because the roach doesn't exist. I just I just made that up. In fact, not only did the did the roach not exist, but 
the meal did not exist. You imagined that. That came out of nowhere. You know, that literally came from the ethereal plane of your imagination, this meal that doesn't really exist. And this, this roach came from, from some, you know, other dimension of your imagination. But somehow, before the roach was created in your thought process, the steak or whatever meal you had thought about was delicious and waiting to be feasted on. And then then this imaginary roach got added to the equation and you got disgusted, right? And that is an experiential way of showing just the power of thought, how our thought can really elicit responses out of us, even when none of these things are really existing outside of us. So you can imagine when there are actual antecedents on the outside of us, actual stimuli, people, places, things, these things can really create a verbal behavior that, that can start pushing us towards a certain type of um, response. One of the things that I get to do at my work is um, I get to work with athletes, which has been an amazing experience uh, to, to get to know these uh, young men and women. Um, I'm a huge fan of sports. Um, I play them. I'm not great at them, but I enjoy playing them. And it's nice to, to be able to, to, to work with athletes. And an example I use a lot with a lot of the clients I work with when talking about this idea of fusion and diffusion in terms of looking at our thoughts rather than looking from our thoughts. There's some experiments that have been done in positive psychology with, uh, with uh, basketball players shooting free throws. For those of you that um, are not familiar with basketball and free throws, when a player gets uh, fouled where he's, you know, the, per- the player defending him commits a foul where actually like impedes him in a way from scoring that is against the rules of the game, the the offensive player gets uh you know tends to be two opportunities to shoot a free throw which is from 15 feet away he gets to shoot the basket the ball at the basket that's 10 feet from the ground without any defense so he's basically just gets a fr- a free throw but you're not guaranteed to make it you still have to make it so you know there's some players that average 70% some average 90% and there's a range so it's a part of the game that is very statistically driven. So, um, some players are just very consistent in the percent rate in which they make those free throws. And one of the experiments that I'm referring to, a, a basketball player was asked to, to shoot a certain amount of free throws. I believe it was 20 free throws. Uh, while saying uh, a sentence in his head, a thought, the thought he was saying, he was told to say in his head before each free throw was make the shot make the shot, make the shot after each attempt. He did that and then um, was given some time to rest because you know they didn't want any kind of fatigue factors. They didn't want any fact- extraneous var- um, variables to throw off the, to compare the within-subject experimental design. Then that same player was asked to shoot 20 more free throws. But instead of saying, make the shot, he, they told him to say to himself, don't miss the shot. Don't miss the shot. Don't miss the shot. And, you know, al- algebraically, those two sentences are the same. You know, if if you were to algebraically, I guess, uh, symbolize what a sentence is, right? But statistically, the results were very different. The trial in which the, the basketball player shot thinking the thought, 
make the shot that's significantly better than um, the trial in which that same player shot thinking don't miss the shot. And some of the research, the conclusions from that is how, you know, our, our muscle memory uh, just works better in affirmatives instead of in, in negations. But it was also, you know, a further derivative of that conclusion is the fact of the power of thought, just just the language that we use in our head, how it's got like ramifications and the, the butterfly effect of all the different ramifications of our thought. It's it goes from conscious to subconscious and it really affects our performance. Just um, just dealing with muscle memory, not even thinking about how it affects emotionality and and uh, our outward behavior and coping skills, just dealing with whatever turbulence the actual thought would create but two thoughts that are algebraically the same just the different wording has an effect on the way that we can perform is uh pretty significant and i love sharing that with the, with the athletes because they can totally relate and they, and they share a lot of their own experiences um how it, how similar um similar events have impacted them in similar ways it gets a little mind-boggling when you really think about language right like you know it's a thought is just eight nine ten words we've glued together um during our lifetime you know we tend to have a go-to thoughts about certain situations but it's just words it's just words that we've glued together and what are words words are just letters we've glued together and some words they mean what they mean because they've been pulled from other languages. Other words, they they mean what they mean just because someone decided that's what that word's going to mean. You know, for one person, a bridge means um, something, and for another person, the word bridge has a whole other emotional response because um, words are charged. You know, they get charged with with our experience, uh, the, our thoughts. They the, the, our thoughts. Uh, they they have a power over us if we, if we're too fused to them. Uh, DJ Moran, who is an act therapist, the man, the man's amazing. I would highly recommend um, just looking him up. He's fantastic. He does a simple activity with, just to show this idea of uh, diffusion with the word lemon, right? Like so, like you know, he'll do he'll, he'll have you say lemon and have you visualize this, uh, you know, lemon cutting a lemon open and like just how we tend to have like a, a saliva a saliva response to it. And then just saying the word lemon over and over again, lemon, 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 lemon. And eventually, like the word lemon, it loses its notoriety. You know, just it's not even, um, it's not even, it doesn't even feel like lemon anymore. Like if you say it enough times, you don't, it sounds like an alien language, you know. I always joke around with my friends how, how we overuse the word awesome. We, we use the word awesome so much that awesome has become good, good has become okay, and okay has become horrible because these words, through overuse, have ended up gaining other types of meanings. And, it, and the meanings are basically fusion. We've just fused these new ideas to them, you know? A good example of uh, how we fuse uh, like an emotional meaning, meaning to a word is a, is a client that I'm working with who's... Um, um, him and his wife were expecting a child and they're having trouble picking a name for the child because the name that one of them wants to pick um, has an emo- a negative emotional meaning to, to, to the other, to the other parent, right? So the, um, the, the mom loves one name, but unfortunately that name is the name of a family member of, of the dad who um, he'd rather not the child be named after. And um, and it's just it's just a name, but it's not just a name, is it? The name has this 
what, seven, eight, nine, whatever amount of letters glued together that represent a name. And there's so much fusion attached to the name and the history behind that name that it's just not, it's not even considered an option for the, for the dad to, to want to name the child that because of the fusion to, to the, to the emotional material. That's the power of language. It's the power of words, how it, they bring so much with them. And it happens to all of us. It happens to all of us. This uh, where, where we get tormented, haunted, uh, distracted, uh, discouraged by patterns of thinking. Um, this language that comes up that tries to undermine us in one way or the other. And in, in our fusion with with such language, we become inflexible. It it it, it kind of condemns us to react a certain way in particular settings. We all have that. You know, maybe it's easier for you to to do a quick survey of of friends in your circles who, you know, kind of the way they're going to react in a particular situation. And the reason why you have a pretty good idea how they're going to react in a particular situation is that you've had enough history around that person to know that given certain antecedents, they're going to think something. And because they're going to think something, they're going to act on that thought. And that is, you know, that is the, the inflexibility of what fusion can do, right? Now, we've been talking a lot about fusion and how it creates inflexibility. Um, The way to become flexible would be to use diffusion, to be able to diffuse, to detach from your thoughts, right? So in cognitive behavioral therapy, the goal is to, you know, cognitive restructuring and thought stopping and things like that. And, um, And although those things, you know, there's a lot of empirical research supporting that those approaches work. They're also very exhausting approaches. They take a long time, and uh, and it's a uh, and sometimes um, there's a bit of a relapse of you know you might use the tools, but then uh, in the heat of the moment you forget those tools, right? But in the idea of diffusion's different. It, it we're not telling you to change the thought. We're telling you to to just detach from it, to to acknowledge the fact that you had it, and it's okay to have it, but to diffuse yourself from it, to allow the thought to happen, but to continue to do the thing that matters, right? Good way to talk about that is um, to do a brief introduction into this idea of the thinking self and the observing self, right? So um, the thinking self, uh, if you kind of like to to kind of go, to, to mind blow you a little bit, right? Imagine the very moment that you were conceived, that very first micro moment to right now, this very moment, your thinking self has been evolving. It's been evolving. It's been, um, it's been creating expectations, judgments, bias, things it doesn't like, things it does like, things, um, things to expect from the world, things to not expect from the world. This thinking self has just been evolving from day to day to day to day since the very first micro moment that you were conceived. It, your ecosystem has been presenting stimuli that your thinking self has slowly evolved from, right? Um, then you have the observing self, which from that same very micro moment, that observing self to right now has not changed because it only observes. It's not passing judgment. It's not creating expectations. It's not predicting things. It doesn't have favorites. It just observes. It doesn't, it doesn't observe. It doesn't personalize what is happening. It, it, it is just an observer, right? 
So the reason why the, this is important is that that it's um, a, a nice way. I think I believe it's Russ Harris. Uh, uh, highly recommend his book, The Happiness Trap. He talks about it in uh, Happiness Trap. This idea is a good way to look at it is your observing self is like the atmosphere, and then your thinking self is all the weather patterns within the atmosphere, right? And so <clears throat> when you're fused to thoughts, you're, 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 you're looking at things from the thinking self. And when you begin to diffuse yourself from thoughts that are problematic, I'm not telling you to diffuse from all your thoughts. <laughs> you know, we want to you know, want to diffuse from the ones that are getting in the way of your values, right? Um, the, way, the way you diffuse is your shift from being in this thinking self into the observing self. Uh, and then that gives you an opportunity to observe your thought instead of being ruled by it, you can look at it just like you look at, you know, the red stapler. Nice office space reference. Thank you for those that notice. I appreciate it. Russ Harris, um, in his book, Happiness Trap, does a great job talking about basic ways of diffusion to diffuse yourself from thoughts, right? So a very common one is noticing the thought, right? So uh, the way that would go is, if I'm having a thought, like, um, to, to give you an example, one of the things um, that I do is uh, I'll do talks at universities, right? And sometimes the group is, uh, you know, a large uh, mass of people. And so you get to a certain, there's a critical mass of about, when, once I start getting to like the 80s or 90s, um, the, the amount of people in the audience, I notice I get a little more nervous uh, than than say what I the groups I'm normally more used to speaking to on a daily basis, which tend to be you know anywhere between eight, fifteen, twenty tops, right? And what I notice is in those circumstances, I'll get you know uh, um, this thought creeps in, like you're, and the thought um, sounds something like, "Danny, you're gonna mess this up so bad," right? That tends to be the thought. I, um, <clears throat> I wish I can give it, some, do it some justice, and make it sound more, you know, like Schmeagle and Lord of the Rings and precious. But it's more like, uh, you know, it's Danny. You're gonna mess this up so bad, and that's pretty anxiety provoking as as you attach yourself to that thought, because then it starts to fan the flames of your anxiety into this like uh, consuming fire, right? Um, and I think that. If I were to continue to like stay attached to that, then probably I would never get any of those talks done. Um, so, you know, what Russ Harris would say is notice the thought. Thank yourself for having the thought. So um, the simple tactic that I do that I, that I just say, oh, I'm noticing that thought again that I'm going to mess this up so bad. And there's a thing that happens. It, it, it's, it's subtle and you might not even notice it as I explained it, but there's a significant difference between me, between me having the thought, you're going to mess this up so bad versus I'm noticing I'm having that thought again, that I'm going to mess, mess this up so bad. Did you notice it? It's subtle. And you can add to the, to that sentence, that noticing sentence. It, it can be even more elaborate where, you know, look at this comparison you have the thought i'm gonna mess this up so bad versus there i go there i go again i'm noticing that i'm having that thought again that i tend to have that i'm that i'm gonna mess this thing up again and what's happening is you're creating this space between the thought and you it's it's almost like you're expanding um you're creating this like space to observe it's it goes from you know 
like if you grab a piece of paper with some text on it, you, you went from holding it really close to your face where you couldn't even focus on the on the words, the text on the paper. And with each addition to the noticing um, statement, you've pulled it further and further away and it's no longer a part of you. It's just something to observe, like the red stapler. Yeah, uh, Russ Harris has other suggestions also right there's some silly ones is when i do when i do lectures at uh fiu i'll ask um I'll, every class has a has a an impersonator someone that's good at doing impersonations and one of the things that russ harris says is say that thought the one that i that i had mentioned of uh you're gonna mess this up so bad he would say how would that sound that same thought so menacing in its hoarse whisper right how um how uh, discouraging would that thought be if we, instead of using our voice to do it, we were just do it like in a Mickey Mouse voice. Now, please forgive me for for my terrible Mickey Mouse impersonation, but um, that just kind of just humor me as you listen to this and see how that thought of you're going to mess this up so bad, how that comes across as you're going to mess this up so bad. I know that was terrible. I apologize. But. I think you get the you get the gist, right? The just that the language, that language put in a different voice loses all of its oomph, it loses all of its gravitas, right? To say that recurrent negative thought that undermines your efforts to commit towards your values, to say that voice, to say that thought in another voice is a nice way to diffuse to, to diffuse it. It's the same thought, but all of a sudden there's some kind of like comic book character or some kind of cartoon character that's saying the voice with a recognizable tone and all of a sudden you realize okay so yeah that it's just words it's it's just letters glued together to make words that got glued together to make thoughts that somehow elicit a response out of me and it just tends to be that i say these words in the presence of these antecedents because in the past it brought some kind of gratification or some kind of understanding, some kind of problem solving to make sense of the situation. And that is the power of diffusion, is to be able to understand that I can create a distance between the, the behavior of my language and my observing self and just look at it and, don't, and not let it rule me. Another diffusion tactic that Russ Harris uses is, um, or suggests us to use, I should say, is um, these problematic thoughts that we might have is to, to say them but sing song. Like, you're going to mess this up again. You're going to mess this up again. And, you know, that was supposed to be the happy birthday melody. So um, I'm showing you that I do not have a career in cartoon impersonations, nor do I have a career in singing, and I'm okay with that. But, again, see how the thought loses its oomph, it loses its gravitas when all of a sudden you put it to a very, you know, uh, non-threatening, very uh, jovial, kitty uh, melody. And then you realize the thought for what it is. It's just words put together, just, just letters that create words, that words that create sentences that we deem as thoughts. And unfortunately, we put so much weight into these thoughts. We stay so fused to them that they really begin to dictate the lens we see life through and really influencing the way we do things and a lot of times the way we don't do things. So diffusion is very powerful. It's, it's one of the key elements in, 
in cultivating this idea of psychological flexibility because we think so much. We're constantly thinking. Uh, Russ Harris, uh, he talks about in his book, Happiness Trap, that about 70 to 80% of our thoughts tend to be negative. So imagine if you're fused to that many thoughts that are negative. Like, good luck with that, right? You're looking through the you're looking at the world through a negative uh, negative lens. And it makes sense that our thoughts are tend to be that negative. Um, evolutionarily speaking, our, our ancestors, there was a reward for them to think negatively about their environment. That's what, what, what helped them last longer. The, the overly optimistic uh, ancestor did not last very long if he was you know, skipping through the woods, not worried about some kind of predator in the bushes. Um, they probably didn't last long, definitely not long enough to procreate and, and teach the next generation their brazen ways, right? But the, our ancestors, the ones that had a negative mind state, you know, um, that were worried about what was around the corner, they were cautious, they were worried, they were anxious, they were negative thinking, and they lasted long enough to, to procreate and then to teach those ways to the next generation. So it makes sense that we inherited that, that we are their descendants. And the dilemma is, is that now we don't have, you know, we don't have a saber a saber-toothed tiger around the corner, right? Around the corner, there's a McDonald's or there's a bank or there's a there's a stop sign, and yet we're still fused to these negative think um, thinking patterns, which can be very problematic. I had mentioned earlier that obviously I don't, I'm not saying to to diffuse from all your thought. Um, that's not what I'm saying, right? Um, as we continue to uh, go through the different processes, you'll see how all these things work together because we, you know, eventually we're going to talk about values and there's, that's a direction we want our life to travel in. And there's going to be times that we want to commit towards something that's important to us and then thoughts will come up that will get in the way. Those are the types of thoughts that we really need to look at diffusing from. There was a client that I worked with a couple of years ago, and I, I kind of worked out an algorithm with him on the on the board. I have like a dry erase board in my office because I love to doodle so much. And on the board, I told him that, look, if, if you're having thoughts that are destructive, then let's go into our diffusion tactics. But if the thought is constructive, then there's no need just allow it enjoy that i mean i'm not you know that's we don't want to diffuse from the from the edifying thinking you know those they're not causing any problems right they're not straying us away from our our values or keeping us away from the things that matter it's the ones that distract us the ones that we end up you know going into instant gratification mode to feel better about it because we're so we're seeing the world from our thoughts those are the ones that we need to to understand that those are the ones that are causing us inflexibilities as we pursue the things that matter so as we wrap up this uh, episode two uh, just just a few things to to keep in mind right that our thinking our thoughts our verbal behavior it's something that is obviously helpful right i mean it's it's uh it's not a bad thing that we think right the bad thing i'm using air quotes again like you can see me right the bad thing is when um, our thinking starts to uh, restrict our our ability to do what matters, right? When our when our thinking, when we're so attached and fused to, to the way we think, that it starts to lower our options, it decreases our options, it makes us inflexible because we have we end up with a rigid uh, response to particular events because we're so fused to that language. That's when it becomes problematic, right? Another takeaway would be to keep in mind that we have a thinking self and an observing self, right? And that we'll go into that more, especially when we get into the area of uh, mindfulness and being present um, to have contact with the present moment. Because 
there's a there's a power in knowing that there's a sanctuary in observing self that we don't have to be always caught up in this thinking place right um mindfulness meditation these are powerful tools thousands of years old and there's a reason why it works there's a lot of good research supporting it and to begin cultivating a a practice of meditation mindfulness can can do wonders for your mental health as it pertains to diffusion and cognitive fusion is when you start to understand that there is a part of you that can just observe and not think that creates a distance to, you know, like a, a way to expand so that you can back away from these thoughts and look at them and not let them be the, the, the center of the way you're looking at everything, right? Looking from your thoughts. And to understand that, like, you know, uh, if you're going to read Russ Harris's book, Happiness Trap, which I highly recommend, is that there's some really simple, practical tools of diffusion um, to, to notice your thought, to thank yourself for having the thought, to, to use comical voices, cartoon character voices, just to trivialize the thought itself and realize that it's just language that you've kind of put in place to match up the, the antecedents that have occurred, right? The third tool that I had mentioned is uh, singing along, right? Like to, to sing the thought, the words of your thoughts into a particular melody of a famous song. And then you realize, man, I mean, these are just words. I mean, they're just words. I, I understand that sometimes the words have an, emo- an emotional weight to them, um, which I do not, trust me, I do not want to trivialize or demean or diminish what the emotional charged element of those words are. But what I hope you see is that as we begin to try to cultivate this idea of psychological flexibility is to be so attached to these words that we put together, to be so fused to them, to to be so um, almost like worshiping at the altar of these thoughts really just shrinks our universe and really, really affects the quality of our life, which is ultimately the goal. The goal of this, of psychological flexibility is to begin increasing our quality of life. And, and it's not going to get rid of the thoughts, but it's what it's going to do is it's going to recategorize some of these thoughts as what they are, just language. It's just a, it's just a behavior. It's a behavior pattern that for some reason, these particular circumstances, whenever I feel this particular emotion, it pulls this, these words together. And that's been my go-to move. And unfortunately, sometimes some of these thoughts that, that get composed really limit the way I can react or respond to a particular situation. And sometimes I react to my detriment because uh, I go into instant gratification mode rather than committing towards things that are more important, that things purposeful for me, things that are valuable. So in conclusion to this episode, I want to issue you a challenge. I'm going to challenge you to to, as I always do, to become an active participant in your own life and pay attention to your patterns of thought. We all have particular thoughts that creep up. They tend to be uh, recurrent thoughts, particular situations, maybe with a particular coworker or boss, maybe with our, with our significant other, maybe in traffic, maybe with a family member, with friends, when something doesn't go our way, maybe sometimes when we're just in our alone time. Want you to pay attention to that. I want I want you to, to start noticing what is that language that's coming up. And the challenge is to use some of these diffusion skills on, on those things. See see uh, what the experience is to be able to to say, 
thanks for having that thought. There's that thought again. Look, there, I just had that thought. And, and or, you know, use the funny voice one or the song one. And the challenge is, is, is to see if you think that helps. If, if that's something that maybe given a particular circumstance where maybe, say, in the workplace, you get into this frustration over a particular situation, if you're able to diffuse from the, some of the language, some of the thoughts coming up to your in, in your mind due to the circumstance, if that helps dissipate the situation where 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 you notice that you're beginning to respond to the situation rather than react. Um, that's the challenge, and uh, I hope that uh, you follow through on it um, as we all try to get more flexible and become more self-aware. Thank you so much for listening to episode two. If you have any questions, feedback, um, anything really, uh, feel free to email email us at thebalancingactpodcast at gmail.com. I'd appreciate it. I'd love to hear any feedback or questions you guys might have as we begin to progress and evolve in this in this process. This concludes episode two of the Balancing Act podcast. I am Danny, and I am thankful. Take care and remember your challenge. <laughs>